maybe 30 or 20 years ago, a Saudi might have said, I'm Muslim and I'm Arab and I'm Saudi. Now they might say, I'm Saudi and I'm Arab and I'm Muslim. You know, they're trying to radically refashion their country and they need help from the best experts in the world. Do you want to have your country's people be disqualified from that because of some essentially antiquated point of view about how countries work together? In recent months, it can feel like Saudi Arabia is intent on buying the world. It's bought up much of golf, sports teams, many of the globe's best soccer players to its own domestic league, and it owns huge chunks of many of the biggest companies on the planet. But Saudi Arabia is not just on a shopping spree. The once insular, oil-rich kingdom is transforming into a major diplomatic and military player, a pivotal actor in the energy transition, and looks set to host high-end cultural events like the FIFA World Cup. You know, they know that buying a football club immediately brings you a billboard into a global game that allows you to completely reposition yourself and rebrand yourself. It feels like we're entering the era of the Saudi project. But what exactly is the kingdom trying to achieve and will it succeed? Coming soon from Intelligence Squared, the Saudi project is a new podcast series seeking to answer some of these questions and more. Britain does have choices. It's not either or situation. We either indulge Mohammed bin Salman or boycott Mohammed bin Salman. There is a third choice. Search The Saudi Project wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. And I'm producer Faye Adivita. It's a double hitter coming up on the podcast. We've got history and politics, ancient and modern, discussed by two experts who've been at the forefront of both fields for many years, Mary Beard and Rory Stewart. Mary Beard is, of course, the beloved classicist, author and broadcaster who's Professor of Classics at Cambridge University. Her latest book is Emperor of Rome, Ruling the Ancient Roman World, which analyzes the excesses and wild tales that surround our understanding of the imperial leaders of the Roman Empire. And Rory Stewart may now be best known as one half of the hugely popular Arrest is Politics podcast. He also served as an international diplomat before becoming a conservative MP for a decade from 2009 to 2019, during which time he challenged Boris Johnson for a shot at leading the country and also ran for London mayor. He knows a thing or two about politics, much of which you can find in his recent book, Politics on the Edge. The two of them joined Intelligence Squared live on stage at Cadogan Hall earlier this week in mid-November 2023 to share their perspectives for our event, Power and Politics from the Caesars to Sunak. And I know you were there, Connor. How was it? Yeah, Mary and Rory were in top form and the queues around Chelsea were like a One Direction concert. Uh, you know, we had a sold out crowd. But I suppose what also really added to the event was earlier that day, it was announced on the news that David Cameron, who's the former Prime Minister of the UK, many people will know, uh, was returning to the UK government as Foreign Secretary. So that added a little bit of intrigue and spice that uh, Rory Stewart certainly had something to say about. I love it when something unplanned like that happens. Exactly. There was a great atmosphere in the venue and it was a shame you couldn't be there, Faye. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about where you were on the night? Yeah, so I was somewhere else, but just as exciting. I was doing a recording with the one and only Louis Theroux, broadcaster, writer, podcast host. He was talking about his career, talking about his experience in interviewing people, how he approaches open conversations. It's actually something special that we're working on. So listen out for that on the podcast very soon. But back to today's episode, which we're going to be playing out in different installments. Part two of the conversation follows this episode. And part three is our exclusive members-only audience Q&A, which saw Mary and Rory taking your questions from both the live and online audience. 
If you're an Intelligence Squared member, you can get all three parts right now, including the subscriber-only part three. Question from Lady in Blue. Yeah, to help the people with the mics, it's a bang in the middle of the road. <laughs> no, the, the mic will be passed down to you like a baby being carried over heads. That, that's a bad metaphor. Okay, I got the baby. Um, I'm really curious about the number of times Johnson's been mentioned today. And actually, I'm looking at the title, and I don't think I heard Rishi Sunak mention tonight. Okay. I, I mentioned him once with the petrol pump. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Maybe that's the picture we're looking <laughs> for. But I guess my question is about what does power look like today then? Because he is the prime minister. What does that say about his power? Yeah. Well, I think that the first thing to say is, and, and this maybe is a, a more serious answer than I've managed to give so far when we talked about power, Mary very kindly asked me about power at the beginning, is the sense of constraint, um, the lack of options. And I think this will be true of Keir Starmer too. One of the problems partly is that our modern late capitalist system puts huge constraints on what these governments can do. As you saw, when Liz Truss tried to borrow more money and cut taxes, she was hit immediately by the international markets. There are certain countries, the United States, for example, that's the reserve currency of the world that's able to have much more freedom. But there is a sense that there is a very limited frame within which at least people like Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer feel they can operate. They may be wrong. Maybe they could be much, much bolder. And indeed, there are economists in London who would say they should be much bolder, but they feel as though they are very, very limited in terms of the manoeuvre. They're very limited in terms of public opinion. I mean, you can see his powerlessness to some extent in relation to Suella Bravman. He's finally fired her, but he probably should have fired her six months ago, nine months ago. That's driven again by his sense... His sense of the realities of power and constraints from the party. And, and Head over to intelligencesquared.com slash membership to get all of that right now, plus a ton of extra Intelligence Squared content, ad-free listening, and updates on our upcoming live events too. Or hit subscribe on Apple for just the audio. Now let's join Mary Beard and Rory Stewart live on stage discussing power and politics from the Caesars to Sunak. Thank you very much. Uh, it's absolutely great, I think, for both of us t- to be here. And we're, we're going to do this as a bit of a, it's a, a real conversation, but um, with some unreal bits, I think. <laughs> and I wanted to start simply by asking Rory about what we're talking about when we talk about power. You know, I, I'm tempted to say, look, you've got... You know, one of the country's most successful podcasts. You've got a book which is, you know, week after week in the bestseller list. You've got, uh, you're involved in a charity that has got enormous impact. Does that feel like power? Or I think I would put it better to say, what does it feel like? to feel you have power, and how far a kind of traditional politics always set a stage in that. Right, well, thank you. I mean, I, I 
find that um, one of the secrets of modern British life is the sense that it often feels as though there isn't any power anywhere. And so politicians spend a lot of time, I don't know, thinking that journalists have power and the journalists maybe think the business people have power and the business people maybe think the politicians have power and so on and so forth. The reality of being a minister is very, very odd. So when I was um, Secretary of State for International Development, I was in charge of a budget of 20 billion US dollars a year. So 13,000 million pounds a year. With almost no constraint, it was legally protected by an act of parliament. There was no interference from the treasury. There was no interference from the prime minister. And yet, oddly, it didn't feel like the kind of power that I had when I was running a small charity on the ground in Afghanistan. Mm. So when I was on the ground in Afghanistan, I was under buildings. We had a couple of hundred staff. I could see water supply going in. I could see clinics being built. I could get involved in the design of a balcony or worry about where the electricity system was coming in. As a Secretary of State, you sit in an enormous office and you sign bits of paper. That's like being a Roman emperor, you know, we'll come back to this. This is so, I, I want to, I'm going to throw that back at you. Um, it, it is something that interests me. I mean, you have the idea that somebody like the Emperor Hadrian has a lot of power. But of course, he can only be in one place at one time. Now, he travels around a great deal, but wherever he is, he's just here. Yeah. And what he's doing at the other end of the empire is presumably, A, takes a certain amount of time for the message to get through, but B, is dependent on person after person after person. He can't actually, I don't know if he's standing in Britain, yeah. worry too much about exactly what's happening in the design of a forum in Spain. Yeah, that, that's true. And in, in the Roman Empire... You can explain if you want to. I don't think it's the complete explanation. But you can explain the powerlessness of a person apparently in power on practical infrastructural grounds. You know, that, you know, you've got your governor in Bithynia and he's asked you a question, but the letter's taken three months to get to you and it's going to take three months for you to send the reply, by which time he's going to have to have made his own mind up. You know, you cannot control that. And I think ancient historians, and I'm, you know, I'm guilty here, we, we blame that, you know, on the practicalities of it. But of course, when you know, talking to someone like you and saying, well, how does it feel like to be a minister? As a minister, you can communicate instantly, but you still have that sense that things are going on around you and you're not controlling them. And in a sense, there is a, you know, where we think power is, there's often a kind of black hole where the person apparently wielding it, and I think that's an interesting word, um, is, you know, is, is sitting there wondering what the hell to do, aren't they? Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. 
Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. I mean, it's, it, it, this is partly I mean, something I think would be definitely worth uh, talking to Mary much more about, which is the bureaucracy because of course the reality is that and, and Mary's wonderful book which if any of you haven't bought she must read um, is very very good on the fact that on the surface there are very very few civil servants working the Roman system a lot of soldiers an enormous number of soldiers compared to the population but surprisingly few people that we would describe as civil servants running this whole setup but my experience as a minister is that the relationship, and I don't know whether this would be true of an emperor with uh, an emperor's civil servants, but certainly I changed in my life from being a civil servant. I was briefly a British soldier. I was then a diplomat in the foreign office. And I thought when I became a minister, I was just like a senior civil servant. So I could sit around a table and I could have a sort of debate, like a seminar about what to do or what not to do. And we'd come to a conclusion. I'd make a decision. It would happen. Nothing of the sort. It's completely impossible to do things like that. I realized very, very slowly that to get anything done, I had to actually do what I hated doing, which is create the three-word slogan, reach over the head to the public. So in prisons, for example, I spent um, nearly six months having a discussion on what we could do about violence in prisons. I was getting absolutely nowhere. It was only when I said to the BBC, I will resign in 12 months unless violence comes down in prisons, that I then got some power. Then suddenly I could set up an operations room. I could focus on 10 prisons. Some money came my way. The civil service sort of woke up. They had a target to aim for, and everybody got behind the idea. Um, and I, I'm, I wonder whether there's a, anything that we can see of that, whether maybe, and I, I was thinking, we were talking about this in the green room, whether emperors can't change small things, but they can occasionally pull huge levers. <laughs> so they can, for example, we were talking about, I can't remember who it is, is it Septimus Severus, who suddenly makes everybody Caracana. a Roman citizen? Caracalla. Okay. So, um, so how does that work? You wake up one day and you suddenly think you're going to make everybody a Roman citizen. Those big changes are, of course, the changes that none of us can actually explain. I mean, you can see that the Roman Empire quite resiliently carries on, probably a bit by luck, um, as much as anything else. You know, they don't get found out. They don't ask too much. Um, the idea of Roman control is a very limited 
um, a bit of control. What you have in the middle is a guy who, if he's successful, has learned to act the part of the emperor. It's, it's performance politics, to suspect is not unlike our own. Um, and then very occasionally in the history of, what, 300 years of the Roman Empire, you find someone like Caracalla, who's a frightful bruiser by all accounts, you know, absolute hard-headed, shit-faced guy, right? Suddenly he says, every free person in the Roman Empire will be a citizen. It's the biggest grant of citizenship to uh, ever made anywhere Ever. Can I can I interrupt for a second? So this is a guy who's he's a professional military man. He's quite sort of tough. He's quite ruthless. And then suddenly he manages to do this quite extraordinary political thing. I'm not sure. I mean, he does have a good reputation with the soldiers, and he kind of dresses up quite convincingly. Part of the act, you know, little military skirts, um, um, and you know, he's he's a guy who's gone down in history as. In a kind of nasty. I mean, his nastiest moment was um, having his brother, who was partly a co-ruler with him, his brother Gator, murdered in the palace, um, put to death on his mother's lap. Well, Gator cried out, apparently, and this is either a hopelessly pathetic moment in Roman history or terribly poignant. He said, um, mummy, mummy, I'm being killed. And that Caracalla is the mastermind here. Um, he's eventually assassinated by uh, the soldiers in the middle of a pee. Actually, he's having a pee while on campaign, and they choose that as the moment to do him in. But his, his major claim to fame is this massive extension of citizenship, and we cannot understand why he did it. But, but it's possible. It's an incredibly imaginative, bold liberal political step which transforms the way the empire works. That is how we would like to see it and that appeals to us. Um, the only ancient explanation of it, the own, and we don't have to believe this, is that actually he was short of cash and he thought if he gave everybody citizenship they'd all become liable to inheritance tax. Now. Seems to me that's a sledgehammer to crack a notch, really, you know. But, uh, but it's, you know, it's the, the madness, the craziness, or at least the inexplicability of yeah. why people in government, in power, do what they do. So, so I guess the, the reason I'm interested in, in this emperor and what he's up to um, is that one, one of the odd things, certainly when you look at European politics over the last few hundred years, is that frequently these rather brutal, nasty people can occasionally do something which is really transforming and peculiar. I mean, they take power in a very, very sinister way, and then they manage to uh, achieve things. I mean, the, the classic example of this in, in the US is, is Lyndon Johnson. If you haven't read Robert Caro's extraordinary four-volume biography of, of, of Lyndon Johnson, do. So Johnson is corrupt, violent, we talk about peeing, um, uh, in his case, he was perpetually taking out his penis in front of other senators in order to impress them in the washrooms. And he insisted in essentially humiliating people with his enormous height. He was corrupt. He almost certainly had people killed. 
And yet he was the man who introduced the first civil rights legislation in the United States. He was the man who transformed civil rights in the United States. And so I, I, it's possible that Caracalla is, is simply uh, after the money. It's possible, I mean, or, or we can look at, um, look at Northern Ireland. Uh, Ian Pacey Jr., for some reason that is still very difficult to understand when all his political interests were lined up with continuing to reject the peace process, having rejected the peace process since the early 1970s, towards the end of his life, flips and uses his political capital to do something very dangerous. Lyndon Johnson wiped out the Democratic Party in the South. And I think that decision is interesting because there must have been quite a lot of Romans who were very proud to be citizens who were deeply, deeply affronted that something that they saw as very special had suddenly been given to every Tom, Dick, and Harry. Yeah, um, and it, it, it causes all kinds of confusion. Um, one, one bit of confusion is that almost everybody in the Roman Empire ever after is called Aurelius because you take the name, you take your Roman citizen name from the person who gave you the surname of the person who gave you citizenship. So everybody suddenly is got all called the called same. Called after him. It's called after him. Um, but it's, it is one of those things which is... Um, and I think there isn't really another example of that quite in Roman history where this transformative moment comes out of the blue from someone who you would never remotely expect. And, and, and I still find it hard to think of Caracalla as a, as a sweet liberal guy who really wanted to extend the privileges of Roman power. You know, doesn't seem very likely to me. But that was the effect of what he but, did. But I guess my point is, Lyndon Johnson was definitely not a sweet, liberal, no, cuddly exactly, guy. Um, no, exactly. And I, I, I wanted to also, very interested in the book, about thinking about the size of Rome and its budget. So we, we often talk about Rome and the empire as being enormous. But in your book, I think you say the population is about 50 million people, yeah. which is smaller than the United Kingdom today. Yes. So in a sense, when... This horrible man, Boris Johnson, who's ascent to power, you facilitated by putting him on a stage. Um, uh, fair call. Oh, all, you know, all your calls. You know. um, becomes prime minister. He is actually governing more people yeah. uh, than a Roman emperor. And he's also involved in much more dimensions of people's lives than a Roman emperor. I mean, a Roman emperor, you point out, is spending about 50% of the budget on the military. Yeah. They're not running a national health service, they're not running a full education system, they're not, and any of the sort of thing, they're not running a welfare state, they're not running pensions. So the, a modern British government, to some extent, has more power than any Roman emperor could, yeah. could dream of over a smaller yeah. territory. I mean, I think Rome is this extraordinary um, pretense of power when actually the guy in the middle, closer you get, you see that he, there's very, very little that he can do. And that leaves you the question, and it leaves us the question, I think, too, is if the guy, the figurehead, is not doing this, who the hell is? And I, in, in Rome, I, that is almost impossible, I think, to pin down. I mean, what we see is we see a, um, a, two things simultaneously. We see 
the Roman emperor, if they're good at it, performing the rituals of power. And we see people on the outside, the critics at least, worried actually that all that the Roman emperor is, is an actor. And I, that doesn't seem to me to be too far from some of our anxieties. I mean, I'm not a, you know, I, 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 I'm not wanting to attack Rishi Sunak here, but um, I, I think one place where we saw that was when he went out to, sh to demonstrate the British populace that we were all in it together with fuel prices, you know, and he was filling up a, a, a smaller car than he had ever owned, using a petrol pump that he was clearly very inexperienced at and not quite knowing how to pay. Now, at that point, we say, is that guy, is he, is he just a bad actor? You know, and where do we put the boundary between you know, the authentic leader and the guy who's playing at it? And, and it's, it's, it's fascinating, actually, if you look at a lot of what's happening uh, on Twitter X, a lot of what's happening with AI and um, deep fakes, a lot of it is about exposing apparent disconnects between who they seem to be in the public and who they really are. Yeah, and it's, it's one of the real tricks of the deep fakes. So yeah. there was one actually about Rishi Sunak where um, you see him failing to pull a pint and a woman standing behind him looking in horror. Turns out this is untrue. Turns out this is a faked up photo, but it's very, very successful because it hits an instinct we have that, of course, he wouldn't be able to pull a pint, and of course, the bar, bar, yeah. the lady behind the bar would not prove it. It's the same with um, a deep fake they just did on Keir Starmer, where they have a sort of apparent, sort of very crackly recording of him shouting at an aide for dropping his iPad. Notice these deep fakes are not really grand things. They're not no. making Keir Starmer give a speech he didn't give. It's tiny accidental court oh, moments. And yeah. again, a lot of Mary's book is, is about people trying to discredit emperors with glimpses of how they behave at the dinner table or what kind of food they serve or this sort of thing. Yeah, or, oh, I mean, I think in the case of Nero, um, you know, a lot of these lurid anecdotes have actually got much more bottom in them about an analysis of empire than um, most people ever realise. I mean, we love the stories, or classical historians love the stories about you know Nero going to the theatre, and of course he's desperate to be an actor, and he demeans himself because he performs on the stage, and oh, he's he's so vain that he has the theatre doors locked so that no one can leave the performance um, until he's finished, you know, and there are wonderful stories about women giving... You've actually done that tonight. His own. That's true. Don't try to leave, guys. Don't try. Um, you know, women give birth, so I hope there's no... <laughs> hope that's not going to happen. Women give birth and, and uh, others pretend to drop down dead so they can be carried out. And... <laughs> And these are great. You're laughing and I laugh, and I think they're wonderful anecdotes. Uh, and, but they're more than that. Because actually, what they're saying is not just Nero was crazy, you know, and look how vain he was. They're saying, here is the emperor being an actor 
for real. And what does that tell us about how he normally is? Is he ever not an actor? I, I also think some of the characters in your book, I mean, it, Mary opens with this description of this extraordinary young teenager who comes over from Homs in Syria and becomes the Roman emperor in his, in his early teens. And I wonder with a lot of these people, the things for which they're criticized. So Nero is criticized for being an actor. Elagabalus is criticized for apparently trying to change his gender. Uh, yeah. Commodus gets it in the neck because he appears in gladiatorial fights. But to some extent, one wonders whether one doesn't sympathize with these young men being <laughs> trapped in a role. And that maybe, you know, maybe, goodness, Nero probably does think when he talks whatever his Roman equivalent for therapist is, I've always wanted to be an actor. actor. <laughs> you know, and he says, you know, what an artist dies with me when, you know, his famous last words. Um, because they, they really have that option, right? You, you're made an emperor and you're supposed to be a pretty kind of... Yeah. Like you're supposed to, you know, grow a big beard like Hadrian and all. Well, I only... Look, let me give you a tip. You only grow a big beard if you're a second century emperor. So I tell you, if you ever wonder how to tell emperors apart, a good tip is that if they've got a beard, they're second century. And, and you don't think that's Hadrian also trying to show he's one of the men, macho soldier kind of... Or he's trying to show that he's a Greek philosopher. You know, fine. How do you know? But I, I think that, I suppose when I was writing the book, and I want to turn this on to you in a way, because I want to know how sorry I should feel for you. Um, very, very, very sorry. sorry. Very, very sorry. <laughs> you know, I thought in the end, look, I, you know, I hate autocracy. I've been brought up to think that it's vile and awful, and I still kind of think that. I still do think that. But, you know, I looked at these ordinary people you know, with all their frailties, having to pretend that they were the rulers of the known world in an impossible um, administrative structure, not knowing what was going on. And in particular, I think, knowing at some level, if they thought about it, that no one would ever tell them the truth anyway. I thought this was, you know, this was a job from hell. Then I thought, well, how does, how does that equate with both ministerial or prime ministerial power in this country? I mean, do, do I imagine when you're a secretary of state or when you're prime minister, who tells you the truth? Um... Well, it's, it's uh, I mean, I think this is probably the experience maybe of, of, of Roman emperors too. Um, some people really take pride in telling you the truth in an extremely curmudgeonly, non-constructive fashion. I mean, there are many people who really like the idea that I'm speaking truth to power. In fact, it's one of the most tedious things in the world, right? <laughs> Rather than actually having a sensible conversation, somebody really wants to put themselves on their pedestal. I'm telling you how it really is. Um, I think what um, I feel when I think about being a Roman emperor um, is that they will have experienced um, a very, very strong sense of public distrust and loathing. I mean, one of the odd things is that the Roman Empire continues for a very long time, but basically they are portrayed 
as grotesques. And a lot of the Romans writing about them seem to basically think their entire political system is noxious. And that seems a bit familiar. I mean, I think, you know, 70% of British people in a recent poll basically feel powerless, feel the political system is broken, feel our democracy is a sham, feel our politicians are incompetent, corrupt, useless people. And at the same time, of course, when I am a politician performing, I can never, ever be good enough. And this will be true, I think, if you're a Roman emperor. It doesn't matter how fluent I am. It doesn't matter how funny I am. It doesn't matter how clever I am. I will never, ever be able to know enough. Everybody in this room will be able to catch me out on something. Everybody in this room will have one moment, one anecdote. Oh, well, we can't trust this person because we know he did X, Y, Z. In other words, you are set up day in, day out, whether on social yeah. media or on the media, for, for humiliation and failure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the stakes are arranged so that you can never live up to, actually, in some ways, the rather foolish standards that you're being asked to live up to. I mean, I, I think o often, uh, I, you know, I think about Roman emperors when I read an article in the newspaper and it's signed by the prime minister. And I think partly, I think, oh, so the prime minister wrote that. And then I think, no, he didn't. Um, you know, some, you know, he put his name to it. He probably read it. Um, but um, it, it isn't. Do I think it's his word? When, when someone gives a speech, you know, I know the great, you know, the great, I'm putting this in inverted commas, the great lines of Margaret Thatcher were not written by Margaret Thatcher. You know, sometimes she, it's clear that she didn't even understand what the speechwriters had written. You know, when she says, the lady's not for turning, she doesn't seem to get that it's a, a parody of the lady's not for burning. Um, and, and yet still, right down there, I'm still saying, well, I don't like this because it's not, he's not real. But in a way, no politician can be real, just like no emperor could be real. And they're caught on the same um, hopeless, hopelessly idealistic standards. You know, when Nero gives the speech uh, at his uh, adopted father Claudius's funeral, gives the eulogy, um, Tacitus writes with barbed words that uh, Nero, he said, didn't write the speech. It was his tutor Seneca who wrote the speech. Nero was the first Roman emperor to use borrowed words. Our politicians use borrowed words all the time. Except I don't. Every speech, uh, well, uh, all, this, authenticity embodied. This is important because I think one of the problems with historians is that you can be overly cynical, overly cynical, right? You you actually are, are worse sometimes than journalists. You assume the whole thing, the whole thing is a shout, proud, proud. Yes. A shout. No, no. But this is important because I believe Tacitus when he says that. And I can tell the difference between colleagues of mine for whom speeches were written yeah. and people like me who never, ever delivered a speech yeah. that was written by someone else. But you don't believe it. You assume every time you hear me speak, every article you read, somebody else I that I haven't it. done it. Yeah. Someone else is and you're wrong. And you may be wrong about Nero's predecessors. <laughs> okay. 
at that point, I'm just going to say, because we're about halfway through our conversation here, that um, in another 25 minutes or so, we'll be opening up to uh, questions, both people who are listening online. Um, there'll be roving mics uh, in the body of the hall, and there's two fixed mics um, on the gallery. So that's what we're going to move to at about Eight to five. Wonderful. So I'm going to I'm going to follow up because you raised Tacitus. <laughs> um, so um, Tacitus, for those of you who haven't read Tacitus, definitely worth reading Tacitus. I, I think the probably the best history. I mean, the, the historian most worth reading, which is different from best, most worth reading, who has ever lived. Right. Um. I mean, so Put that on the back cover. So, I mean, so, so mesmerizing. And very unluckily, we don't have all of Tacitus. The stuff that he wrote closer to his own life, he became a, a working, serving politician, uh, has vanished. We have his earlier stuff. And some of the earlier stuff, I think, was only turned up in some monastery in Germany or the Netherlands, pretty belatedly. Yeah, Agricola did. Yeah, yes, it was okay. relatively. So, it's, anyway, what we have is somebody who is very, very angry. He's both uh, somebody who works within the system, has got promoted, has done reasonably well, has got these sort of commands out of emperors, but is also just disgusted with his fellow politicians, disgusted with his fellow senators. And again and again, he's describing the ways in which they're being cowardly, greedy, dishonest, failing to live up to his vision of what proper political conduct should be. But that's true. I mean, as I say, I'm, I'm Tacitus's number one fan. He's my desert island book, I think. Um, he is extraordinarily twisted. Um, and he is looking at the culture under the first emperors um, up to basically first century CE, uh, and wondering how to be able to express his disgust. There is, you know, there is no, almost no good person in Tacitus. The, the opposition to Roman emperors uh, are a load of complete wallies who can never get it right, and just have, you know, have no forward plan, they just kind of moan. They're sort of they're vocal dissidents, but nothing else. The emperors themselves are utterly corrupt. And he, he's trying to express what it is to live in a world where political power um, is poisoned, basically. And one of the reasons that Tacitus is very difficult to read, I mean, he's kind of really the, the Roman literature's equivalent of Finnegan's Wake in part of what he does, is he's trying also to say, you know, you can't even write about the corruption of this power without corrupting the very language in which you write about it. So it's an extraordinary, um, brilliant attempt to nail corruption wherever you see it. And it's you know absolutely unforgettable. I mean, the, the favourite um, quip for me is his description in his work Agricola, the biography of his father-in-law, who was governor of Roman Britain. Um, the the horrible 
bon mot about what the effect of Roman imperialism is um, when he says they make a desert and they call it peace. And, you know, in, in some ways, um, you know, we're still making deserts and calling them peace. And he's absolutely brilliant. But as you say, Rory, he was the world in real life. He's Mr. Collaborator. He's in with the people that he's criticising, he's taking their shilling, and he's doing their jobs for them. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Hannah Kay and edited by Tom Hall. Don't forget, there's more of that discussion to dig into for Intelligence Squared members. Part two and three are ready to hear right now. Head over to intelligencesquared.com membership to sign up and get the whole discussion and a lot more. Or hit subscribe on the Apple Podcast app. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet.